Well, today we continue our Transform series, looking exactly at what are the attitudes and practices that God uses to shape and mold us as women, men, teenagers, kids, into the people that God wants us to be. The term Christians have used over the ages for this process is called discipleship. I want to begin today by telling you about a man named Leo Biscaglia. He was born in Los Angeles, California, March 31st, 1924, into a family of Italian immigrants. Uh, He went to high school there. When the Second World War came along, he was drafted into the Navy. He served throughout his time in the Navy. And when, at the end of the war, a lot of the American soldiers were given something called a GI benefit, a GI Bill benefit. And he took that money and he went to University of Southern California, USC, And he had enough money to get a bachelor's degree. He graduated in 1950, and his family was so proud as an immigrant family. They never imagined their son kind of graduating from university. He did that. Then he got really into academics. He he got a master's degree in 1954 and went on to earn a doctorate in 1963. And then eventually joined the faculty there at University of Southern California. And he is kind of a little bit famous for uh, the first one to do all the research and publish papers and all this about the concept of human interactions and that we need five hugs a day to survive. We need eight to maintain positive emotional state and we need 12 hugs a day to thrive. Clearly the man did not live through a pandemic. (laughs) Nobody's getting 12 hugs a day right now. Uh, During one lecture, he shared what he considered the turning point in his family when he was a kid. He said, my papa came home one evening, gathered us together, and said that his business partner had just absconded with all the money in the business. They were completely broke, and he was going to have to declare bankruptcy. And then Leo Biscaglia said the next day his mom did the most amazing thing. She took some of her precious jewelry that had been handed down in her family. She went to the jeweler that she knew and she sold that jewelry. The father came home. He was completely despondent, totally depressed. He said, we as kids came home, we're wondering if there's even going to be dinner that night. Are we so broke that we can't even afford dinner? But instead... That mom took that money and made them the most amazing feast. He says, thinking back to it, it was like he took Christmas and Thanksgiving and sandwiched them all into one. Leo's father wondered if his wife had gone insane, and he sharply demanded in a great Italian accent, what's the matter? You go crazy? And this is what the mom said. She said, the time for joy is now when we need it, not next week, next month, next year. And he said, looking back, that's the moment that our family pulled together. An older daughter said she would work overtime at her job. Leo, still a kid at that point, he said, mom and dad, I'm going to go sell magazines on the street corner. He said, instead of despondency, the mood became one of, we're going to make it as a family. Leo Biscaglia had a really wise 
mom. But 2,000 years before Mrs. Biscaglia made that great decision, Jesus knew the value of doing something that brings great joy in your life, not after all your problems are solved, not after your stress and your exhaustion are gone away, but rather right in the midst of it. Jesus modeled for us and talked a lot about two different practices. First, the practice of setting aside one day a week for praying and playing, for worship and for rest. We call that keeping the Sabbath. Secondly, when things are at their most demanding, most stressful, Jesus showed us and commanded us to get, us, get away, spend time by ourselves in prayer, prayer in solitude. Jesus preached about both of those practices and he constantly did them himself so we could follow his example. We're going to look at the first one today, keeping the Sabbath. We're going to start with the Ten Commandments where God lays out the idea of taking one day a week for worship and rest, or as Eugene Peterson calls it, praying and playing. As I read these verses, I want you to view the Ten Commandments specifically through the lens of thinking about the Sabbath. If you have your print Bible, I encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. That's where you find the Ten Commandments. The verses will be on the screen as well. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents, the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All right, there's the Ten Commandments. Now, for the past 2,000 years, the Ten Commandments have served as the bedrock of what the Western world thinks of in terms of right and wrong. Did you notice a few things as I read? Here's what I noticed first. It says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Well, in human history, who are the people that are forced to work seven days a week? No breaks, no time off. They are slaves. That's what we call them. God was known first to the nation of Israel as a God who rescued them out of slavery. 
Now, isn't it amazing when he gives them the Ten Commandments at the heart of that covenant, that agreement between himself and the nation, he takes up one whole command, specifically doing the opposite of slavery. He demands that his holy chosen people take a day to worship and rest, to pray and to play. I think that's remarkable. And until I prepared this week, I don't think I ever saw that connection. You probably saw it ages ago. I'm a little slow in the uptake. Bear with me. Here's the second thing I noticed. Eight out of the Ten Commandments are phrased in the negative. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Eight out of ten are phrased in the negative. But there's two that are different. Honor your father and mother and honor the Sabbath. A day to worship and rest, to pray and play. Isn't that interesting? That's what God chose to put in the heart of His covenant agreement between Him and the nation of Israel. Just in case you're wondering, that was really odd, really unique in the ancient world. We have no record of the Babylonians, the Philistines, the Egyptians, or the Assyrians. Nobody else's God told them to take a day off to pray and play. That didn't make sense to the ancient world. Still doesn't make sense to our world. We think, what are you talking about? We can earn way more money if we work seven days a week. All right, third observation about the Ten Commandments. It gives a basis, a reason, for the command to even exist. It goes back to the account of God creating this world and this universe. It says, God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, He rested. The obvious question is, uh, so is God tired? We know from the rest of the Bible that God does not run out of energy. He doesn't get tired. He works tireless. He is unlimited in His power and strength and knowledge. So if God didn't take a day off because He was tired, there must be some other point to it. Yes, there is. I think it's two things. He wanted a model for us that we're meant to take a day off. And number two, that he wanted to simply enjoy his creation. Eugene Peterson, pastor and author, adds a mind-blowing thought. He says, apparently, there are some things that can be accomplished that can only be accomplished even by God, only in a state of rest. Whoa, that's deep. I'll let you think about that. So that's the original basis. What have human beings done with God's good command for our benefit? What have we done with this command that we are meant to worship and rest, to pray and to play one day a week? Well, we've typically gone one of two ways. First option, which the Jewish people have historically modeled for us and the Orthodox Jews in Israel still model for us, people become totally legalistic about it. I've shared before about my amazing trip I got to go back in 2012 with 20 other pastors to Israel. Gorgeous country, amazing food, innovative, smart people. Here's what I experienced. We stayed in a hotel near the end of our trip in Jerusalem. And when it got to, got to Friday evening, sundown on Friday, to sundown on Saturday, the Jewish staff in the hotel disappears and the Palestinian workers uh, come in. 
And then during that time, my friend Jason and I, they had kind of paired us up as roommates, and we went to get on the elevator. And we're like, weird, the buttons aren't working. Well, there is a Sabbath setting on the elevator. And you, you don't control it. It just goes to every single floor. And the doors open and the doors close. It just is this automatic Sabbath setting. Not that convenient when your room's on the 22nd floor. By about the 10th, we looked at each other and said, let's just take the stairs. Honestly, it's going to take forever. Now, there is a huge amount of respect and, and, and you just admire their devotion, their culture, all those things. But honestly, in terms of what the Bible really set out as the Sabbath, that is a massive adventure in missing the point. God didn't create the command so we could take it to some religious extreme where we won't even push buttons because that's considered work. God commanded it so that we could have a sustainable blueprint for life, a day to restore, a day to worship and rest, to pray and to play. If there's anyone listening today that grew up in a really strict Christian household, it probably wasn't too far off that Jewish legalistic approach. Definitely no sports on Sundays, no running around the yard playing games, just sit in the corner with your hands folded and be bored. I've talked to a lot of people that are in their 80s or 90s. They tell me stories of growing up in Christian households like that. And I said, what did you learn out of that? And they said, well, pretty much that Sundays were boring and pretty restrictive. Never really liked it. And that is tragic because it's so far from God's intention to worship and to rest, to pray and to play. So, on the one hand, human beings have tended towards turning the Sabbath into a boring rule, on the one hand. Others, the opposite extreme. We just completely ignore the Sabbath. Don't participate in it altogether. You may have heard about, in Christian history, two amazing brothers, the Wesley brothers, John Wesley and Charles Wesley. A ton of the worship hymns that we would sing in church were written by these two brothers, they pastored churches. They eventually started an entire denomination called the Wesleyans. These two brothers accomplished a phenomenal amount. One thing they weren't good at was setting the example of keeping a Sabbath. When the denomination got going, they were famous for their pastors who rode around on horses all over the United States. Tish Harrison Warren, in her excellent book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary, tells the story of these workaholic preachers on horseback. She says, Wesleyan ministers in early evangelicalism, often called circuit riders, were expected to work between 90 and 100 hours per week. So many early ministers collapsed under sheer exhaustion that the Wesleyan denomination created a worn-out minister's fund. Now listen to Tish's analysis. She says, note that the rash of worn-out ministers did not cause the movement to rethink its tactics. It did not generate a theological discussion around the ideas of rest and the sustainable Christian life. Instead, they started a fund, another activist cause to rally around. 
She says, worn out ministers are part of our evangelical heritage. There are predecessors, there are heroes. And many of us continue in that legacy. We are worn out ministers, worn out parents, worn out business people, worn out believers. Isn't that insightful? That story has stayed with me all week as I've prepared this sermon. How, so how does this practically affect our work weekly life? Again, Tish Warren is helpful. She shares her personal journey. She says, soon after we were married, Jonathan and I took up the ancient practice of keeping or observing the Lord's Day each Sunday. She says, we were grad students at the time, so giving up our study hours on Sunday afternoon was a big sacrifice. But we began a routine which now has lasted over a decade of beginning Sunday by going to church and then coming home to nap, to savor a long walk, to have a slow night of just reading for pleasure or just hanging out together. And then she brilliantly says this, it took me years to realize that our time of gathered worship on Sunday mornings and our Sunday afternoon nap are related. Rest is not simply a physical need. It is not only our brains and muscles and eyelids that must learn the habits of rest. We need holistic rest, physical, psychological, and spiritual. That's it, Ocean View Community Church, everyone listening online. Physical, psychological, and spiritually. Or as we have summarized so far, pray and play. Okay, so we've looked at the original command in the first half of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, but what does Jesus say about the Sabbath in the second half of the Bible? Great question. There's no better passage than Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. At that time, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry began to pick some ears of corn and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and he was completely restored, just as sound as the other. I mentioned before that our human nature tends to go two ways with the Sabbath. Either ignore it, or we can become crazy legalists about it. 
By the time Jesus was walking around Israel, that is a fantastic, is that not the best? I, is just, I don't know what that is, but that's a legalist right there, baby. By the time Jesus was walking around Israel in the first century, the Jewish people have been going down the legalistic road of the Sabbath for a long time. Now, the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were, they were a group almost kind of like the religious police. It was all about following the rules to the nth degree in order to keep God happy, make sure God didn't judge the nation again and kick them out of the land. Jesus is the good news, the gospel. And as I've talked a lot about in this series, we don't make ourselves holy or morally perfect in God's sight by keeping the rules. That's anti-gospel. That's us earning our own salvation. In Jesus Christ and His eventual work on the cross, His goodness, His righteousness comes on to us. It's transferred to us. That's the good news. That's the gospel. So Jesus' disciples are walking along. They're hungry. So it says in some versions they pick some grain. In the NIV it says they pick some corn. Whatever it was, they picked a bit and they're just eating a little bit as they walk along. All of a sudden, religious police. Beep, beep, beep. Jesus, why do you allow your disciples to do work on the Sabbath? Jesus' response is amazing, as it always is with Jesus. He gives them two examples from the Bible where God permitted people to break the rules when they were in serious need. Jesus says, guys, you're missing the point here. It's not about sacrifice, that you have to follow the letter of the law no matter how inconvenient or desperate you are in life. It's not about sacrifice, but about mercy. And then to prove the point, Jesus enacts a miracle right in front of that group of Pharisees. A man with a shriveled hand is there in their synagogue. The Pharisees want to trap Jesus into being a rule breaker so they can say, see, see, he did work on the Sabbath. So for Jesus, is it lawful to do work on the Sabbath by healing this guy? You know, what a horrible, tragic place to come to in life. You know, I was thinking this week, there are two ways to be lost, to be far away from God. One is you don't know anything about Him. You've never read the Bible. All you've heard your whole life is there's no such thing as a God, no such thing as a spiritual realm, no such thing as sin. You certainly don't need a Savior to solve the problem. All of that is being lost in a secular way. But there's a second way to be lost, isn't there? You can be religiously lost. Unfortunately, that's where the Pharisees, these religious rule police, that's where they find themselves. Jesus uses that moment to turn the tables. He asks them a question. He says, So there, gentlemen, you who measure your wealth and status by the amount of livestock you own, what if one of you had a valuable sheep And he came along and found your sheep stuck in a pit. Now, which one of you wouldn't stop and pull your sheep out of the pit? He goes, you'd probably look around to make sure nobody was looking. I think you'd haul that thing out. He goes, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Now, here's the thing. There's this man standing there in their synagogue with a shriveled hand. These guys don't care about him. They're just using him as bait to trap Jesus. 
But if you think about it, having a shriveled hand in Canada right now in 2020, that's a challenge. That's a huge challenge. In the first century, that was almost devastating. Because if you couldn't work, you didn't feed yourself. There was no social net, social safety net. There was no disability pension. There was no program to retrain you to work in something else. It is in all likelihood the fact that this guy probably wasn't married. He probably didn't have a family because what woman's going to marry him when he can't even provide for her and the kids? And there's Jesus, and he looks at this guy, and compassion fills his heart. And Jesus says, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? By saying that, Jesus declaring that he himself has the authority to say what is and what isn't lawful on the Sabbath. Absolutely mind-blowing for a first century Jew. Now, in order to prove his authority... Jesus performs the miracle right there in front of them, heals this poor guy's hand. Jesus giving him his life back, his ability to make money, his ability to get married and have a family, his ability to be socially acceptable again. Mercy, not sacrifice. Now, here's what I honestly believe, Ocean View Community Church, if all of us could consistently practice a Sabbath we would be less stressed out, less anxious, less exhausted. As the title of the sermon states, the practice is life-giving. Mondays are my Sabbath, and I found them to be exactly that, life-giving. Over 25 years of pastoral work in a church, this past year has been a huge challenge, but one of the things God has used to keep my head above water is that consistent practice of a Sabbath, having Mondays. Eugene Peterson passed away two years ago this month at the age of 85. The man was incredible in terms of what he accomplished in life. I looked it up. That dude wrote 34 books. Some of you haven't even read 34 books. He wrote 34 books. That's incredible. And then he translated the entire Bible from its original languages of Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic into English and produced the message version of the Bible. It took him years and years and years to finish. In all those years, he was also a pastor of a church. Eventually, he was a professor at Regent College in Vancouver for five years. And it's unbelievable what one person can accomplish. It may surprise you to know, however, that Eugene and his wife, Jan, consistently kept the Sabbath. And so he had Mondays off as well. This is from one of his book, Working the Angles. He describes what they do. He said, we make a lunch, put it in a backpack, take our binoculars and drive anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour away to a trailhead. Maybe along a river or in the mountains. They lived in Montana, so they like BC, lots of beautiful outdoors. And he said, before we begin our hike, my wife reads a psalm, and then she prays. And he says, after that, there's no more talking for the next two hours. We just walk, and we walk in God's handiwork, His creation, His nature. A day set apart for solitude and silence, not for doing, but rather for being. He calls it the sanctification of time. 
He says, as they walk along and look at things, they're opening themselves to God's beauty and creation. Then he says, when the sun kind of hits that point or our stomachs tell us it's lunchtime, we break our silence. We pray for our lunch and then we chat. He goes, we enjoy our lunch. We thank God for all of it. We go back home. We put around, do odd jobs. We read. After supper, he says, I usually write my family emails or letters. That's it. He goes, it's not unbelievably, shockingly amazing. There's no thunder and lightning like God had on Mount Sinai when he gave the Ten Commandments. It's not like the Apostle Paul got this blinding light on the Damascus road. He says, if all of us practice something like that in our own ways, we would be different people. I think he's right. I think we would be a different people, a different church. I think we'd begin to affect those around us. I was thinking this week that, you know, if Canadian Christians took the Sabbath seriously, if we tried to practice that in this amazing country we live in from coast to coast, I think the neighbors, the people we interact around with us would start to see a huge difference in us. We would be countercultural in a really good, attractive way. Not a dorky, weird way where you have to wear polyester if you go to church. In a good, attractive way. Now, the Sabbath is not the be-all and end-all of the Christian life. The be-all and end-all of the Christian life is Jesus living inside of us. That's the biggest thing. But it is a God-ordained plan for how you and I are supposed to function best. God made us. Do you think maybe we should listen to him when he tells us how we live best? Now, many scenarios in life make the idea of a Sabbath keeping a real challenge. I grew up with a dad who was a commercial fisherman. Sunday night at six o'clock, man, the fishing opened. It needed to happen. But my dad always made a point, even in the busyness of the fishing season, if we were in a port somewhere, we were close to a local church, he like, come on, kid, we're going to church. And he would try to do that. My dad would try to make a time for worship. He wasn't so awesome at the rest part. He was really good at making me work, but no, my dad was amazing. But I understand life can be hugely challenged. There can be a billion scenarios. You know, every overworked single mom, every stressed out business owner, every overworked bank manager, every tradesperson who comes home and their body's just exhausted. My challenge, even though it is so difficult, make it a priority. For parents with little kids, you can't seem to get away even for an hour. Maybe call up your relatives, find out if they'd be willing to take the kids even for a couple hours. And when you get that time, don't just kind of zone out and binge watch Netflix shows. As tempting as that is, I want you instead to pray and to play. That may be watching one show, but not the whole time. Be like Jan and Eugene. Read a psalm. Go for a walk on the Holland Creek Trail. Get a cup of coffee. Go pray and walk Transfer Beach. Moms and dads, play games with your kids. Teach them how to play Settlers of Catan. Go skating at Fuller Lake Arena. Pray and play. Well, we began this morning with the crisis moment in Leo Biscaglia's family growing up. Leo's wise mother sold her jewelry, put on a feast in the midst of the worst thing her family ever had to go through. The time for joy is now when we need it, not next week.
To everyone here in the auditorium, everyone listening online, I want to say the time for a Sabbath is this week when we need it, not some unidentified point in the future. Do it. You will be blessed with peace, calm, joy, and simplicity. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Amen? Amen. Brenda, come pray for us.